Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the Waters Wavelength podcast. I am Anthony Malakian, the editor at large of Waters. (laughs) (laughs) And I am joined by James Rundle, our U.S. editor. Hey. Yeah, there you go. Good job. Yeah, exactly. It's our big reveal. Uh, James will be taking over as U.S. editor. I will be moving to the role of editor at large because I just got tired of actually editing things and you know doing having to do anything management. I just want to report on things and uh, that's, that's our cover story. It's actually all the sexual harassment laws. Yeah, story. exactly. Yeah, yeah it's like well, he's going to be on up. leave for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> so um, today it was funny. So we started recording this thing yesterday, Thursday, and. The computer that we were using, it was crashing. It just wasn't working. So I had to bring in my laptop from home. And so we had this whole kind of script laid out for what we talk about, posted up Thursday night. Well, it's a good thing that this all came together well because Friday, big news. Um, we have State Street buying Charles River. Well over two billion dollars, and to think we were so pissed off yesterday that we had to come in today and record the podcast. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, I wasn't even going to come in today, actually. Neither was I. So, just to let y'all know. First of all, we will be writing a very long uh, piece about this uh, acquisition. We feel that our subscribers, you know, um, that this news is out there. Mm-hmm. The value that we have is our sources and uh, just the people we know in the industry, specifically, specifically cap markets. And so we are reaching out to a lot of different people trying to get comments about what this means going forward. You know, both what does this mean for State Street and Charles River, the product offering for their users? What does this mean for the larger OMS space with um, TR, uh, Fidesa, um, uh, what was it, uh, or Ion Fidesa, yeah. TR, and Blackstone, Blackstone and, and SSNC and everyone. Yeah. SSNC and everyone, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> SSNC and potentially as software. By the time that you listen to this, that deal might have already been announced too. There are some rumors about that there right rumors, now, but there's nothing yeah. that's verified or confirmed. So let's, I guess, just, you know, for, for what we know right now, we have spoken to a few people already. Like I said, the article will go up Monday, maybe Tuesday, something like that, once we feel that we have a, a sufficient number of voices and that we've heard from everybody involved. But, James, maybe just a little bit of uh, background. What are, you, what are some of your initial thoughts? I think it's fair to say the reaction's been um, mixed, shall we say, mm-hmm. I think. Yep. Um, so I spoke to a couple of my contacts uh, at hedge funds and asset managers who have been using Charles River either for years or just recently implemented it. Um, you know, one of them joked that maybe the State Street finally saw the bill they were getting each month from Charles River and decided it'd be cheaper to buy them. Mm-hmm. Um, another one said, well, you know, for us it doesn't really matter as long as the software stays the same. We don't care if we're paying State Street or Charles River. Some of the guys were a little bit more hesitant, I guess. Um, they didn't, but these guys I spoke to before who don't like this whole consolidation play that's going on right now. Yeah, they like the plurality of um, vendors. They like the fact that there was a very heavily oversubscribed market because, in their words, it keeps them honest and it keeps them constantly innovating. Uh, one guy said to me, "The problem is that you know when you get to this stage now, which we're in at the moment, where you have all of these guys who are just constantly consolidating, constantly merging, constantly acquiring, um, the field starts to shrink, and suddenly you start getting." A dearth of innovation, um, or the drive to push down prices, the drive to retain customers, the service goes down, and everything else. So, they were of the opinion that it's not necessarily a great thing. Um, well, no. the way so I, I I still don't know where I kind of fall on this. I still need to you know hear some other voices, I guess, on this. 
some of the better quotes and stuff that we got want to say for the piece and don't want to spoil that. Um, but one concern that I heard was just that when you have a bank provider like this mm-hmm. doing the acquiring as opposed to, say, an SS&C or Blackstone, which is their whole job is, you know, kind of investing in these, that these can go off the rails very easily once a big bank comes in, thinks that they can you know, play both ends of this game, be the vendor, be the, be the uh, asset manager, be all these things, mm-hmm. have it all underneath one roof. And often that can go off the rails. The, the talent gap, you know, leaves. Now, granted, this is a Boston. It's an insular community there. So right. it might be a little bit different in that regard. Oh, yeah. The Boston story will be well played throughout Boston. Yeah. Everyone else who you know, doesn't really care about Boston. That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Know, so. Now technology is so universal and it's just, you know, it's yeah. global. I mean, um, so I think that that's one of the interesting things. I guess if you're looking for a positive note, one of the other things I heard was just like, yes, there's massive consolidation we're seeing. And we're basically, like, let's say, hypothetically here, again, we have no knowledge of this right now as we're talking, let's say SSNC does buy as software. Again, that leaves you then with TR, Blackstone TR, whatever, how you want to brand that. Mm-hmm. You'll have SSNC. You'll have Bloomberg. You'll have um, then the State Street Charles River piece here. Um, there are other players in the space, but that creates essentially what is a big four. And if you compare it to the public cloud space, you have basically a big four, five, I guess, if you want to throw Oracle in there as well. Yeah. For our space, not so much, but Oracle is a massive and important player. But for us, we don't hear as much about them. So you, you kind of create that with then these smaller cloud providers say your ESCAS or something like that your BTs maybe not that they're small but that they have specialty services and that that's really where because if you're a smaller player you're going to have to either become incredibly niche and really targeted toward one specific audience that isn't being covered by those big boys yeah or else then you're going to say who's my dance partner I need to we're, we're going to have to sell this bad boy now yeah and I think that's an interesting uh one of the early points you make to drag on that you know State Street isn't your typical Wall Street bank. It's not like a big sell side institution. Sure. It's not Barclays, you know, something like that. You know, these guys have managed the back office processes for funds for you know years. Mm-hmm. Like State Street particularly manages like eighty six of the top one hundred money managers. I think um, that was a stat in the, the Wall Street Journal article. Um, one of the guys I spoke to, um, or just very briefly emailed, um, just said, look. When you're on the buy side and you don't really care about technology, especially for these smaller shops, um, you know you don't really, to be honest with you, mind what you're using on the front end as long as it executes your trades. Mm-hmm. And for them, the big play is STP, right? You know whether you can go through the whole value chain with as little dicking about as possible. Mm-hmm. Can I just put my trade in? Can it get booked? Can it go through to post trade and clearance and whatever, and confirmation and everything else? Um, and when it's State Street taking this on, stepping into the front office, you now have that ability to go straight from trade execution and order management. Through to the admin side, through to the uh, everything else that needs to happen with the trade as well. So, so it could, I mean, State Street in particular, buying it could be a good thing, um, and it could sort of also challenge SSNC, which has grown monstrously over the last few years. I think so. that what State Street's going to have to answer for um, <laughs> as they're trying to sell this, you know, we'll forgive me this one time, mm-hmm. uh, is so obviously. Charles River presents recurring revenue. In media, we have subscribers, which that's what we love. We love recurring revenue. It's always mm-hmm. good stuff to have. It's good for the balance sheet. But does it make a blip on the overall State Street performance revenue number? Um, yeah, well, the that, shares fell, right? Yeah. I mean, when it was by a 
fair amount, I think. <laughs> it was announced that, okay, those EPS isn't going to come in at the same uh, target range as we thought then, guys. Yeah. We're spending two and a half billion on this Boston-based software company. All right. And then the other thing is, you know, are they going to be able to really expand uh, the customer base um, in order to increase revenues? Because one thing that one person said is that all Charles River's clients are already State Street's clients. Yeah. Um, they already have the assets in custody. So this person said, I have no idea what the strategy is going to be to be able to leverage that. And that's a fair enough point that they're going to have to answer if and show for. If I was one of their customers, I'd be saying to State Street, oh, this is great. So that means you're going to give me the software for free now, right? Because <laughs> uh, why the hell would I pay you twice? Yeah. <laughs> and now... Very, very interesting then to see, you know, what does this mean? Does SSNC, you know, all of a sudden, God, that would be a huge deal, SSNC and as just want to make it clear that we haven't contacted SNC or ES for comment on this. We have this not. Is just what we've heard. This is rumors. Yeah. You know, this is yeah. reckless speculation right now, and we're not saying it's going to happen. But th- as with any deal, naturally you have to look at the market and say, okay, who's next? Because there's yeah. all this consolidation happening. SSNC is buying everyone. And we do have to eat a bit of crow here because I remember the last time we spoke about this, we said, could Charles River get bought? No. no. Billions of dollars to buy them, surely. Although we bang on on the valuation. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the thing. We, we really thought that that was going to stay insular, homegrown, you know, that that's that they would be the one that would kind of be like, we're, we at, at the sacrifice of, you know, perhaps growth and things like that, we would just continue on, but we were wrong. Well, it's interesting, though, because, I mean, this morning when I hadn't seen the news release and Tony texted me as I was waiting for the train and just said, oh, that's what's happening with Charles River. Yeah. I went, what? And then just looked it up and saw, oh, right, okay, they've been bought. But we'd heard months before there was something happening or something not happening with Charles River. Like, a few of our contacts had said to him, yeah. said to us, you know, you should have a look at what's happening over there and that kind of thing. And, but, you know, we just thought it was too big of a purchase, but I guess not for, for State Street. So... Again, we're going to be putting together a larger piece on this if you're listening to this and if you have some thoughts on this or if we're getting it wrong, um, yeah. certainly because we do get things wrong. But, you know, this podcast is just free-flowing. It's naturally we're just kind of spitballing, throwing out ideas. It, as you may have noticed. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, we did at least speak to a few people before this. But just not to... Do get in touch with us. Even if you want to talk on background, we won't use your name or anything. Um, we just want to hear what you think about it. If yeah. you're a user of Charles River Technology or if you're a... State Street investor or, or whatever. You know, yeah. Even if you just have some thoughts on it. Like, Good or bad, you know, we want to hear both. It's not, you know, we're not, we don't, we don't have a dog in this race in any way. Um, yeah. So for us. Probably the fact there's one less subscription for us. So one less. Uh, uh, no one thinks of us when they yeah, exactly. Next, right? I mean, come Fidesza, on. <laughs> Thomson Reuters now, we've got, this is just Everybody consolidating. Their, God yeah. damn. <laughs> so if anybody's got any job offers out there. <laughs> <laughs> Editor at large. <laughs> Very much at large. <laughs> uh, so, yes. So that's the news piece. Um, we'll be writing a longer feature about that. Speaking of long features, mm. um, I wrote an incredible long feature, 4,000 words on climate change data. You something that you would not Max think. Bowie's face when Tony told him it was 4,000 words 4, long. 4,000 words. He looked like he wanted to kill himself. Yeah. Uh... 4,000 great words. Folks, okay, we have uh, spoke with uh, with experts from uh, Man Group, UBS Asset Management, uh, uh, AXA Rosenberg, uh, Deutsche, uh, Deutsche Wealth Services, DWS, their asset, their asset management arm, um, the European Bank of Reconstruction Development. That's got a great title as well. Like throughout the, when I was reading the entire piece, I just read in Arnold Schwarzenegger's voice from the end of Days film when he's like, oh, yeah. "Hey Marge, what's with the hardware?" <laughs> so, 
the alternative data space is certainly an interesting one, right? Everybody's now looking to incorporate all this data. We've written about, and it's been much talked about, how ESG data is, if you have firms that incorporate ESG standards, that there's a material material gain, uh, alpha gain to be made. Mm-hmm. That those for, that those uh, those companies outperform those that are weaker in ESG uh, metrics. That's been proven. Yes, thousands and thousands of studies, and we and we bring up uh, just a couple of them there. But we'll also talk about studies later on. But anyway, I did. Yes, (laughs) exactly. That's actually a good point. Um, So, the one though problem with ESG is most of the benefits come with the G, the governance Mm -hmm. end of it, Um, and then next would be social, the environmental end of it. Yeah, there's CO two emissions, things like that, but. The value hasn't been as quantitated, uh, as, as quantified. Unless you're looking in particular, like an ExxonMobil or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the reputational risk, you know, rep risk is a, is a company that's out there. That that's their whole thing is, you know, yeah, you have a massive disaster or something like that. It's gonna hurt your share price. Gonna hurt you know everything involved, and it costs you know investors and shareholders money. Yeah, yeah. Climate change. There's actually, because what we're seeing now. And this is you know the the problem we when you start talking about climate change, everybody just freezes up and they get into their political camps. Right. Obviously, you know even I, I fully believe in climate change and it's man made and you know that's I don't see how you don't necessarily why you stick your head in the sand and allow politicians to tell you otherwise when there's a world of of science out there to prove it. But that's neither here nor there. Let's say you are still say it's not man made. It's just, you cannot deny the fact that storms um, are storms and extreme climate events yeah. are getting bigger, um, more frequent, and are costing a lot of money. We're having billion-dollar storm after billion-dollar storm, meaning the damage that they cause. Right? The, exactly. They are increasing in intensity and they are increasing in violence. So yeah, so they are increasing in violence. They're increasing in size, <laughs> which is funny that. Sorry, we just had the computer crash, so we're just starting here new, but fortunately, it saved most of it. Yeah. So, we go on. So, the the whole point here is that there's now this whole new field. Um, there's now this whole uh, population of data providers that are entering into the, specifically, the climate change and climate risk uh, space. And so, for me, as um, the one that kind of first tipped me off to it was a company called 427. They're based out in Berkeley, California, and they have a, a system in place that basically allows them to map. They, they have more than 1 million facilities mapped around the world, and it provides an exposure score uh, for, a facili- for a facility exposed to climate risk based on its location and industry sector. Um, but then beyond them, you have others like uh, True Value uh, Labs, you have rep risk. Um, you have data giants like Bloomberg, Thomson Reuters, and MSCI are also active in this uh, climate change data index space, as well as the likes of Sustainalytics, which is 40% owned by Morningstar, and TrueCost, which is part of S&P, uh, S&P Dow Jones indices. It's all to say, this is a growing field. There's a lot more um, investment. And so I spoke with the folks at Man, Man Group. Uh, Man Numeric, uh, Deutsche, um, UBS, EBRD, um, AXA, Rosenberg, 
just to hear about how they're using it. And so I thought that that was kind of interesting from it. I don't know if there was any kind of takeaway you thought was. My, my question is, I guess, kind of, you know, what do they gain from this? I mean, I understand the ESG kind of investment ethos and yeah. how that benefits, but how does climate data in particular help people investment making decisions? It's more of you're looking for risk, two, two things I would say. First is just a risk. So when in the portfolio construction process, you know, you have to kind of think about these issues because if if you have um, a bunch of facilities, you know, let's say in Florida off the coast uh, as mm-hmm. more and more hurricanes are sweeping through, if you're not incorporating those potential, you know, millions of dollars of insurance costs that that company is going to take on, you know, as a result of of disrupted facilities. Or let's say, you know, you have a, one one example I was given was, Let's say you're investing in a Korean um, uh, electronics maker, but the chips themselves that are used in those electronics are made in Taiwan, and those facilities are, you know, in flood zones. As more and more floods start happening, the the work chain, the what, what do you call that, the uh, supply chain, is being disrupted. By these uh, events, if you're like investing in wide maker yeah. or something, then their climate could change in the next 25 years to be a arid desert. And so that was the, there are also though opportunities to be made too. You know, so there are so the uh, Craig Davies from uh, the European Bank of Reconstruction Development, he talked about how farmers in Chilton Hills outside of London, mm-hmm. they're now uh, redoing their fields to because they feel that in the next 25 to 50 years, the climate will be similar to that of central France. Wow. Thus, they can uh, potentially get ahead and uh, right, champagne grapes put, and put, yeah, put yeah, crops yeah. down for uh, to uh, to make champagne. So it just goes to show that there's both, it's for incorporating risk and to manage risk in the portfolio construction process. It's because it, this doesn't have to do again, like this isn't the governance end of it. This isn't a CO two emission, so that is included in climate change field. Um, but this is more just to map the climate risk that these companies that you might be investing in are facing. And so each one of these guys just went through and guys and girls uh, talked about just how they're using the data and how they're incorporating it. And I guess for me, one of the more interesting things was just that. I just asked them all about, you know, under the Obama administration, for example, uh, there was a very strong environmental um, policies. There was a focus on uh, environmental um, improvements, uh, lowering climate change, the Paris uh, Agreement obviously being that under the Trump administration, obviously backing out of the Paris uh, Agreement. You know, so what I was just asking was, does it matter you know, to ha- keep on having these different people or d- different administrations having their own um, policies, philosophies, whatever the hell you want to call it. Yeah. You know, yeah, do you have to worry about that? And basically they're all saying no, because first of all, this is a very global thing. These companies that you're going to be investing in, that, they're, that they have facilities all around the world, so these are issues that they do have to deal with now uh, more than they ever had to in the past. So I think that a couple of good quotes that I got, though, from uh, Michael Lewis uh, at Deutsche Wealth Services, DWS, uh, he said, so last year, $600 billion of losses that the insurance sector had to take because of extreme weather events, 50% of that was in the U.S. 
Uh, so definitely, ha- so you can definitely have a political debate about climate change, but when it comes to climate risk and the losses attached to extreme weather events, that is happening. And insurance companies need to address that. Um, you had uh, Rob Verdeck from uh, Man Group for the Man Numerica desk that they have their quantitative equities desk, and you know, basically saying, are you willing to have slightly less fruitful retirement if you know that the plant is going to be retire that you're going to be retiring to is going to be greener going forward so mm-hmm. there is i guess that's the other component of this that that there is a growing investor class that they do want this to be incorporated into their portfolios they're not you know they still want to make money obviously that's yeah. still your that's still what you have to do that's you know that's what you have as a as a as a responsibility but that these are factors that they do want to be considered in it so this doesn't drive it it's becoming it just, called risk management right so exactly rather than just to investment for the sake of investing environmentally friendly companies, actually know the environmental risk on the side of it. Exactly, and the other thing that you know that they were saying too about you know you don't have to worry so much about the macro um, geopolitical climate because businesses themselves and local governments are very much taking up this cause. Even if you know the United States backs out of the Paris Agreement, you still have Michael Bloomberg saying we're going to still contribute uh, toward this, and you have local governments saying we will still adhere to this yeah. and push for this. Uh, Chris Greenwald from UBS said, um, he says companies are a bit more consistently committed to this than the United States government in terms of the position. They need to plan not only for the current regime but for future regimes. Uh, you had a number of state and local governments explicitly backing the Paris Agreement after Trump dropped out. Uh, most large companies also have global markets, and so they need to respond not just to U.S. regulations, but they need to have a product strategy that's going to be successfully successful internationally as well. So I think that this just all to say, there's there are more and more data providers entering the space, which is good because the reason why the E, the environmental um, piece of ESG wasn't as good. It was just that the the data wasn't as good. It wasn't as useful. They weren't getting value out of it. As more and more um, both uh, niche providers get involved with uh, more easily uh, used open source data that everybody can easily use and understand, and we're all starting to use similar definitions, which is a global kind of push. Everybody kind of get on the page. That's the other thing about the environmental space is our, our, our definitions are not the same uh, from state to state, country to country, government to government. So getting everybody kind of on the same page, and that you're seeing more and more of, and that's why this data is becoming more useful, more fruitful. It's still not the be-all and end-all. It's, it's just still a piece of the risk um, component for building, a por- um, for building a portfolio. But there are some interesting new developments and so if you read the story you can see exactly how uh, some of these firms are incorporating this information into their portfolios interesting stuff and i guess then just uh, to finish off here the other thing so inside market data but this this i think this i'm pretty sure it just ran risk first right uh, it ran risk first yeah. yeah um faye kilburn used to be uh on inside market data she's now uh with those bastards over at risk uh bastards um Faye has a degree in master i don't know and she's in, got a, she's a master's in uh quantum physics I yeah think. quantum physics so this story that she wrote with a specialization in uh astronomy or like essentially especially she's a rocket scientist yeah, so, yeah. essentially yeah. yeah rock science that somehow decide to use a degree to go to you know waters and then risk yeah 
But she looked at how um, recent studies have revealed uh, the prevalence of poor quality data exasperated by increased use of machine learning that allows users to dredge far bigger data sets and identify spurious correlations. So basically the research community you know, they're, they're finding all these different correlations for this, and they're saying, oh, this is great advancement. Mind you, we literally just had a conversation about how ESG and how there's thousands of studies about this. this. Got is, it. I mean, this is slightly different. This is a problem with overfitting, right? So the yeah. idea being that there are so many data sets out there and so much data that if you have a hypothesis, you can find the correlation to prove it. Um, I think there's something in there saying that in finance, people are using, like, two correlations to prove a thesis, yeah. whereas in physics, you use five because yeah. it's much bigger. Yeah, in finance, they they were saying that they use three to four, but really it should be up to, to five. Yeah. And then the other problem is that people are now entering into it just saying, well, God, we have all this data, and now we have these machine learning algorithms, AI-driven, powered algorithms that can sift through all this data. This is great. We're going to find never-before-seen correlations. But if you're going into it without any sort of focus, and you're just saying, here, find something, it will find something for you, but is it actually, is it material? Is it going to, can it be proven again? Well, the answer uh, seems to be no. I, mean, I was catching up with Faye yesterday, actually, before we uh, tried the podcast the first time. And she said, look, a lot of these guys come up with these theories, and they look really good on paper. When you put them out in the wild, they stop working immediately. And yeah. so these banks keep doing all these quant strategies, and they keep closing them down within like a week. Because yeah. they just lose money, hand over fist something. Um, and it's informing investment hypotheses and sort of you know decision making and that kind of thing. It's really quite dangerous that this is such sloppy science essentially being put towards this. And the other thing I thought was interesting is just that. So yeah, extraordinarily well researched story, a well reported a source, well sourced story. Spoke to a ton of different people from both large, this large bank. Yeah, yeah, yeah oh, this is great. Spoke yeah. to professors. People from large banks, people from smaller focus, quant hedge funds, all this, you know, so it's really got this, it's a definitive piece for this subject in this field. So it's, it's definitely it's worth reading. It's not risk props, but this, this should win awards. Yeah, exactly. It's really, uh, it's really good. I mean, my climate change story was much better than hers. <laughs> I digress. Um, but the, one of the more interesting things I thought was how even the people agree that there's a problem. Well, they can't quite agree what the problem is. And, you know, she writes that, you know, it falls into four camps. There's either way too much data available, there is, or there, the problem is that there's no human input, or there is not nearly enough data, and forget humans, the machines are smarter, so get the humans out of it. Right. So you kind of have this differing of ideas, differing, uh, different it's hypotheses. as to mechanics, what... folks, man. I don't understand how their brains work. They can hold these two ideas separately. The <laughs> Everything is real, but false. And then for for our space, just the one thing I, I did find to be very very interesting is almost too much of a good thing with AI. Uh, Anthony Morris, Anthony Morris, global head of Quantave Strategies at Nomura, uh, he said that the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning to resolve nonlinear relationship makes the problem a hundred times worse because there are so many more degrees of freedom to play around with. Again, too much of a good thing. And then you quantify or you you expand that my words today suck <laughs> uh george musali chief investment officer at quant hedge fund panagora believes that the rise of alternative data sets has exasperated problem asset managers spend 400 million on alternative data last year uh, and that's expected to exceed 1 billion by 2019 
quote, it becomes a bigger danger when using machine learning techniques on bigger data sets, you can find more spurious patterns. So it is interesting to see that on the technology of water side, we love to trumpet this, these advancements and everything like that. It's also always important to remember that for every advancement, these new cool things create new horrible problems. <laughs> Especially if you rely too much on the new toy. Yeah. But, and you don't have the right people that are managing and watching over it, too. Right, right. Um, all right. So check out those features um, on uh, Phase Fool's Gold page, uh, piece, my climate change, end of days data piece. Yep. Talk to us about uh, Charles River. Charles River, as whatever, um, just the OMS space in general. Happy to hear all your thoughts. If there's some smaller players that you think maybe can all also find their way and find a new home um maybe you know they can become the new charles river of the future who the hell knows um tough space though tough tough competitive environment right now um so speaking of tough competitive environments it's too soon it's too soon hopefully you got to listen to uh james's recap of the england game you did include the first one on there as well i thought yeah no yeah that was too much (laughs) (laughs) so after about a week or so now to digest, you know, how does it feel? Pretty bad still. Pretty bad. I mean, not great. Um, yeah. Trying to keep the cursing to a minimum. Every time I saw Croatia's gurning faces in the final, I was just like, you dirty bastards. But still, yep. you can believe that, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, no, look, I mean, like, it's nobody lost that final, uh, that semi final apart from England. I mean, we played the great 25 opening minutes. Um, sat back and then just let them come at us for the rest of it and we deserved to lose it by the end of it Croatia I think played their guts out in the final um, you and me went and saw it with a bunch of guys and it was a pretty entertaining game yeah I think you know, probably the best World Cup final I've seen yeah definitely time. the best World Cup final I, can't I mean got six goals uh, Croatia for about 50 minutes looked like yeah. wow this could maybe they could get this and and actually beat France that would be lost their confidence and collapsed over 15 minutes didn't they just yeah. so much talent on that French side it I is, mean yeah uh, but you know what Croatia were just still pushing them even towards the end if they had got a Mongol back I think around the 70th minute it could have been a very different game yeah. they could have pushed it to extra time and then done what they did it's a very early game it is funny though because I also feel that if you except for and obviously you know France was the best team in this tournament I, I, by I the end you're watching yeah. but I also feel that the team that I most enjoyed watching and the team that I think if under different circumstances, maybe could have had a different go of it. But Belgium was outstanding throughout this whole tournament. Belgium versus Brazil was pretty much the game of the tournament. I think. Yeah. Was, you know, I mean, you could say Spain, Portugal in that first one. But, you know, it's just the first game really didn't have that much of an impact. But, yeah, um, I, I really think that Belgium was super, super talented. They played beautiful, beautiful football. And... You know, I, I kind of feel you know bad for them that they didn't at least even get to the final that uh, it was France at Denham and it would have been. But again, we were entertained with an outstanding final. Um, outstanding tournament, full stop. Really, I mean, yeah. I, I think easily the best tournament I've ever seen. Yeah, by far most enjoyable. And everyone, and my family has a big group. We go back and forth about it, and they all said the same thing. This is the best World Cup tournament. Yeah, um, yeah like you had your duds like a Germany. But the games were entertaining. Like that first Germany Mexico game was oh, yeah. outstanding. There was and one nail biting. Amazing or, or, sort of nail biting conclusion as well. Like when Germany um, scored that equaliser in the yeah, 94th minute. I was literally in the middle of a wedding ceremony at that point. I was like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> so my, my uncle, who is German, was sat yeah. behind me. He was like, we scored! We scored! <laughs> His wife's going, shut up, boys! Come on! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. God, this last month was. Uh, I was happy when it all ended. I was like, I need a break now from yeah. uh, from all this. Well, yeah, I mean, just my my work suffered so much. I need to catch up with various <laughs> hangovers or having to leave the office to go and watch England games. Exactly. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. The times didn't help us with eleven o'clock and two o'clock basically yeah. for games starting. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah, especially an office full of Brits as well. Early prediction for. Uh, for what would now be 2022, uh, who, who, who's uh, who's your favourite in the clubhouse? Well, we got what have we got? We got the the national league coming up next year, um, which is going to be interesting. Uh, the what? The national league, which is a league uh, system for all the international teams to play them. So they'll do that throughout the year. Okay. Um, then we got Euros 2020, mm-hmm. um, which I think is going to be really interesting to see if Croatia can maintain the momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, 2022. There's only one prediction, really, and that's that football's coming home, Tony. Yeah. So <laughs> England's going to do it then. Yeah. Four years older, Harry Kane. He'll be well, all set to go. He'll be the same squad, pretty much, except, <laughs> except for maybe Harry Kane. <laughs> Not bad. And uh, don't forget, you see in America here, we very much care about the Women's World Cup because that's the only chance that we have at a World <laughs> Cup glory, obviously. So uh, next year we'll definitely be uh, tuned in for that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That'll be it. All right. Well, um, again, if you have any insights on any of the topics that we talked about, love to hear from you. Um, we'll also be looking to, now that we're kind of getting the summer months, things are slowing down here a bit and now we can kind of catch our breath, looking to lock in some also guest interviews, stuff like that. So if you have a good yeah. idea, we, we have a couple already lined up. If you uh, want to be on the podcast, feel free to reach out. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, but okay. Until then, uh, we will talk with you next week. Enjoy the weekend. Cheers, guys.